Hello and welcome. You are listening to Patrick Boyle on Finance, a podcast exploring ideas from quantitative finance, examining events occurring in markets right now and financial history to see what lessons can be taken away, including interviews with some of the most interesting people in the world of finance. To learn more about the podcast, visit onfinance.org. There's an old saying amongst gamblers, if you sit in on a poker game and you don't see a sucker get up from the table, you are the sucker. This rule applies quite often in the world of finance too. Now, if there's an investment structure where three types of investor are involved and two of them have access to a risk-free profit opportunity, it's possibly reasonable to think that the third is the source of their profits. So what is this structure and who are the winners and who are the losers? Well, the structure is, of course, the hottest investment product of the last 12 months, the SPAC, and I'm hoping that you, the viewer, are not the sucker at this poker table. SPAC promoters are so busy banging out new product right now that they don't even bother to come up with names for them anymore. Earlier this month, a SPAC named Two was announced. It's spelled with a lowercase t. The goal is to raise $200 million and take a company public. The name's hardly creative, but I suppose it's easier to remember than XAEA-12, but I'm getting off topic. So what are SPACs? Well, I covered this in more detail in an earlier video, and I'll include a link to that. But SPAC stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company. And SPACs basically raise cash through an IPO. They then invest that cash in risk-free bonds and have up to two years to search for a private company to buy. Buying the company has the effect of taking that company public. When a SPAC proposes a merger, SPAC shareholders have an option to redeem their shares rather than participate in the merger. If they do this, they get back their full investment plus some interest. If a SPAC fails to complete a merger in the two-year period, it sells off the bonds and returns the capital to its shareholders with interest. So why is this a scandal in the making? Well, it reminds me an awful lot of the mutual fund timing scandal from 2003. And interestingly enough, some of the same people are even involved today. The way these deals are structured means that the SPAC sponsor and some hedge fund investors who get in and out quickly can profit at the expense of the long-term investors who are being pitched these deals as a poor man's private equity investment. Let's think about it. If the sponsor and some hedge funds are making risk-free profits in this structure, who is shielding them from the risk and taking the losses? Maybe you don't want poor man's private equity. The biggest winner in this structure is, of course, the SPAC promoter or sponsor. They organize the SPAC, find the target company to take public, and then take 20% of the shares as a fee, which they call the promote. They often put in as little as $25,000 of their own money. Now, of course, they could put in more, but why would they want to? It's a no-lose deal for sponsors. The incentive is to do any deal. It doesn't matter if it's a good deal or not. But once it's done, they get to own one-fifth or more of the company. Even if you end up with one-fifth of a company like Nikola, you just sell it right away and move on. 
The only reason the sponsor cares at all about doing a good deal is that if the deal looks like a success, they then get to raise more capital and do it again. Chamat Palihapitiya has become one of the most prolific SPAC founders, with six listed vehicles and three deals done so far. He's filed to launch seven more SPACs this year with the SEC. Some of the biggest hedge funds have piled into this trade too. Big names in the space include Millennium Management, Baupost Group and Magnetar Capital, according to the Financial Times. These funds can earn high returns with almost no risk of losses if the deal goes wrong, due to the unique structure of SPACs. So how does it work? Well, the trick to SPAC arbitrage is to get in early. Early investors, who are usually hedge funds and not the retail investors who get in later, are usually allocated SPAC units at $10 a piece prior to it being listed. At this point, it's pretty safe as the money you put in is invested in bonds and as long as you get out before the merger, the money is still there. Once the merger happens, the sponsor then takes off with 20% of the shares, so you obviously want out before that happens. Unit holders are allowed to ask for their money back plus interest at any point up until the merger occurs. Typically, for each share, you get a warrant, which is a bit like a call option, but it causes equity dilution, and it allows you to buy a quarter of a share at $11.50, usually. The early investors can split the SPAC units into shares and warrants shortly after the structure starts trading. If they return the shares prior to the merger, they get their $10 back, and crucially, they get to keep these warrants. The warrant, which is worth only a fraction of a share, is a sweetener for early backers who can redeem their investment or sell out at any point while keeping hold of the warrant. When the SPAC has merged with a target, the warrants convert to relatively inexpensive stakes in the new company at a strike price of $11.50. This gives early backers the ability to profit from a hot SPAC merger even if they redeemed their original investment well in advance of the deal. Now this might not sound like much of a return, but because the pre-merger SPAC can be redeemed for $10 and costs $10, hedge funds can usually borrow money and lever up this investment significantly, getting a pretty good return out of it. It's a low-risk investment with equity upside. Few hedge funds stick around after a deal has been announced, preferring to sell their stake at a profit or redeem. In an academic study conducted by Klausner and Ole Rogue, where they analysed a group of 47 SPACs that merged between January 2019 and June 2020, 97% of hedge funds sold their shares or redeemed before a deal was consummated. It's this separation that creates the trade opportunity. Meanwhile, those who stay in for a stake in the merged company, which increasingly includes retail investors, bear the risks of both a potentially bad deal and significant dilution from the free warrants that have been handed out to early backers. There are a few ways hedge funds can win in these deals. Should the sponsor announce a deal that the market likes, the shares might rally above $10 and the hedge fund can then simply just sell them in the market for a profit, their initial $10 having never really been at risk. They have a potential for profit, but not much of a risk of loss. 
If the share price doesn't pop, they can just cash in their shares before the merger, get the $10 back plus interest and hold on to the warrants. If the deal's eventually a success, the warrants earn them a profit. A good recent example is Churchill Capital 4, once again, catchy name. When rumours spread that CCIV was close to striking a deal with electric car maker Lucid Motors, which I think is just Tesla spelt backwards, the SPAC traded up to almost $60. Shareholders who bought in at $10 and were backstopped at that level could exit with a 600% return on investment. When the deal was finally confirmed last month, CCIV fell by more than half to $26. Retail investors who had piled in based on electric car hype paid a huge premium for a stock that had an underlying value of $10. Now, why would a sponsor give such an attractive deal to an investor who has no intention of ever being there for the merger? Well, as I mentioned earlier, the sponsor gets 20% of the shares. Let's imagine that there's a SPAC that has 100 shares. 80 shares are sold to the public and 20 shares go to the sponsor. If half of the SPAC's 80 public shares are redeemed before the IPO, the sponsor's 20 share promote will equal 50% of the remaining 40 publicly owned shares. So the sponsor wins, the hedge fund wins, and the end investors lose. But as Meatloaf would point out, two out of three ain't bad. The academic study that I mentioned earlier, which I've linked to in the description, shows that SPAC shares tend to drop by one third of their value or more within a year following the merger. This suggests that investors who stay invested in SPACs on average take a financial hit. Although SPACs issue shares for roughly $10 and value their shares at $10 when the merger occurs, as of the time of a merger, the median SPAC holds cash of only $6.67 per share, according to that study. So a SPAC typically sells shares to one set of investors in its IPO, typically hedge funds, and another set of investors when it comes time to merge, a more retail investor base. Nearly all pre-merger shareholders exit at the time of the merger, either by redeeming their shares or by selling them on in the market. In effect, a SPAC pays IPO investors generously to get the SPAC up and running so that other investors can later buy shares once a target has been selected to bring public. Just to be clear, I'm not saying that the hedge funds are the villains in this story. They've been offered a low-risk trade and they've taken it. The SPAC sponsors, on the other hand, are pitching a structure that destroys value for retail investors but makes the sponsors and hedge fund investors rich. More and more of these deals are being rushed to market right now before the boom ends. You don't actually have to be a hedge fund to do this trade. Anyone can. But as a retail investor, you might not be able to lever it up as much as a hedge fund can. Of course, the problem here is that if everyone involved did the same thing and followed the optimal strategy, the money would all come in be invested in bonds, and then when a deal was announced, everyone would pull out, ending the deal, making the warrants worthless. For this arbitrage to work, there must be a sucker at the poker table. Talk to you later. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted. 
Thank you to everyone who is supporting this content on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content, you can find more like it on YouTube, on the Patrick Boyle on Finance channel, or follow us on Twitter at Patrick E. Boyle. Thanks for listening. Bye.